0: The rest of us will be in John chapter 4, and I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 4, searching for significance. Everyone searches for meaning and significance in life in different ways and at different times. How do you, what have you done in search of significance? Um, what gives your life meaning? What do you find that's rewarding? What have you found is the purpose for your life? What brings you comfort? What brings you joy? Sometimes people spend a lot of money and consume a lot of different products in search of some kind of inner happiness, you know, to fill a void in life. Uh, One writer said, when we are feeling sad, lonely, feeling empty, eating is one way we can uh, try to fill the void. Oprah Winfrey once said, I have quoted her before, uh, Oprah once said, for me, food was comfort, pleasure, love, a friend, everything. Now, I have to constantly and consciously work at not letting food be a substitute for my emotions. Some people use and abuse food. Some people uh, use and abuse sexual relationships. Um, Some people self-medicate with alcohol or some other kind of chemical substitute. And some people self-medicate with pornography. Some people search for a mate, expecting that if they find that person, it will fulfill the deepest needs of their life. Some people expect children to fill that hole in their heart. What fills the deepest needs of your life? your hobby, your career? What is it that fills your deepest needs? It was Blaine Pascal who said, there is a God-shaped vacuum. Now, this has always made sense to me. Looking back, it didn't ever make any kind of sense before. But looking back, there is a God-shaped vacuum because you were created in the image of God. In fact, you were made for God. And he puts something within humanity that searches for something to fill that deepest need in our hearts. And we spend our lives trying to be filled up. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing. But only by God, the creator, made known to us by Jesus Christ. You were made for God. It's exactly what Colossians one sixteen says. So um, today, Jesus encounters a woman who had been searching for significance in her relationship with men. And so we're going to look at um, John chapter 4, and um, we're going to look first at the setting. I'm just going to read the opening of John chapter 4 as we get started. John chapter 4, here's what the writer of the gospel of John records. He says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So let's talk about the setting for this passage in our, for our story that uh, we, we begin with the situation in verses one through three. And so uh, we're going to look at verse one and uh, then talk this through. Now, Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Remember, last time we were in John chapter 3, and this uh, little bit of a commotion kind of happened between... Leaders of John the Baptist, his disciples, and, and um, a, another Jewish person over who was the most popular. Is it Jesus or is it John the Baptist? Because John had been out uh, in the wilderness. Uh, preparing people for the kingdom of God and preaching. And his disciples had been baptizing those whose hearts were changed. And then Jesus went out, and both of them are out at the same time, and they're in, in somewhat of the same facility. And it, it, in John's camp, there is concern that this is getting competitive. But it was John who brought clarity, because this is what God had planned. Jesus would become greater, and John would become less. Now, in this uh, situation, um, it's John the gospel writer just wants to be really clear that Jesus himself wasn't being, he himself wasn't baptizing people, but his disciples were. You know, imagine if uh, six people said that they were baptized by Jesus, and your baptism probably isn't nearly as good as mine because I had Jesus. Who did you have? you know? And uh, Jesus had his team do the actual baptism. Um, So uh, in verse uh, 3, so uh, he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. So Jesus wants to avoid a major confrontation with the religious leaders uh, when they are starting to be concerned about Jesus's popularity, because now his group is getting larger than John's group. And this, uh, it makes the leaders in Jerusalem uncomfortable. The religious establishment uh, doesn't know what to think of this. Uh, They become concerned. And so as Jesus is out, uh, all through his ministry, religious leaders show up and they often seek to challenge uh, what he is saying or what he is doing. Now, the location in verses 4 through 6 gets pretty specific here, and the location is now Samaria, verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, a province of um, north of Judea. So it's like the, a county size, a province. And Samaria also has a city named Samaria, so there's a Samaria, Samaria. And uh, Samaria, as the province, had once been central for the northern kingdom of Israel. A little history here, I won't uh, bore you with a lot, but in the 8th century before Christ, Israel as a nation was divided into two, the north and the south. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom centered in Samaria of Samaria, and the southern kingdom um, centered in Jerusalem of Judea. Uh, verse 5, so he, that is Jesus, came to a, a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And so John is referring to uh, Genesis 48, 22, about this land that was passed from Jacob to his son Joseph. Um, And this was when they were returning from Egypt uh, to go back to the promised land, the land that God had really given his people in the land of Canaan. And um, so Jesus travels to this small town, Sychar. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and it's not a church, it's actually a well. And uh, he's tired because he's been traveling all morning and he sat down by the well Uh, this is a pretty good well it's 100 feet deep and we know that today it filled up with sediment and they were able to clean it out in modern times to determine that it's 100 feet deep and it's spring fed Um, and it's been in operation for 1800 years uh, 1,800 years in the time of Jesus' day. So we can just throw 2,000 more years on this. Jesus is tired from a f- for his journey. And this is just a reminder to us. Uh, you know, Jesus was fully God. He was the Son of God. He was equal with the Father, but he was also fully human. That's, that's what the Christmas story is all about, how God became human. And he... Uh, voluntarily placed limitations on himself by taking on a physical body. As God, he could have walked all day. But in this physical body, it was just like yours and mine. It got tired. Except I get tired a lot more than that because he's a whole lot younger than me. And we know the time here, it's about noon. So it's, uh, it's the peak of the heat of the day. And Jesus is tired, Jesus is thirsty, and he sits down. So let's have a look. You know, we, you knew we were going to have a map. And um, so, you know, Samaria is right in the center, and so is uh, that small-town Sychar. Now, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. That's where he met Nicodemus. And then he moved out and began to baptize and um, after uh, they'd had this little uh, competitive spirit thing going on and the Jewish leaders sort of uh, understanding what was going on, that Jesus was becoming more popular Jesus begins to move further north, and he ends up at Sychar. And uh, by the way, this would be the most direct route to get to Galilee, where he was headed. Jesus will make his headquarters in Capernaum, um, and he's already been there, but it's not quite his headquarters yet, and um, so he's heading north, And, and the reason there's a few zigs and zags, you know, we would want to build a super highway, it's just due north, no variations, but in ancient times, the roads were built around rough terrain, that is the most direct route. There are two other routes. One is to go uh, to the left coast, the Mediterranean, and the West Coast. And uh, there was a highway along there. Uh, there was a armies used it when they invaded. They just came right up the West Coast. And uh, they were able to invade Israel. Another one is on the east side of the Jordan River. And so let's look at that next map. And um, that's the way most of the Jewish people headed north. They avoided going through Samaria because they hated the Samaritan people, and the Samaritan people hated them. And it had been going on for over 800 years. Um, We see the encounter in verses 7 through 22. And Jesus meets a woman, and she had given her life, uh, searching for significance through relationships. First, there are some social barriers in verses 7 through 9 that Jesus will overcome. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? He really is thirsty. And his disciples had gone to town to buy food. I'm kind of guessing Jesus just orchestrated this whole thing. But this is an awkward uh, situation. It's awkward because this is a man and a woman alone in public. And they are strangers. It's socially awkward because she is a Samaritan and he is a Jew it's socially awkward because she is a Samaritan and he is a Jewish rabbi and Jewish rabbi would have walked way out of the way to avoid her and Jesus is intentional he sits down but remember that Jesus knows what is in man John chapter 2 verse 25 He knows us. He knows people. He knows what's in our hearts. He knew what was in her heart. He had been intentional about being there. Why did all the disciples have to go buy food? Because he said so. And Jesus is alone with this woman and um, this, th- this goes back uh, the 800 years, as I, as I mentioned. Um, the northern kingdom had been invaded by the, uh, the Assyrian uh, empire, and they had carried off into captivity a huge portion of the population, but they left the poor behind, a smaller number of people to live there. And then the Assyrian Empire brought in uh, captives from other nations, uh, Gentiles. And they settled them there in this northern part of Israel alongside of the poor people left in the land. And their plan is to let them intermarry and let them um, have families. And that... corrupts the Jewish race. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And along with that came a whole bunch of foreign gods that got intermixed with the God of Israel. And uh, it's going to have a huge impact. In fact, um, out of this came a separation of the Samaritan people and the Samaritan leaders That they sort of created their own religious perspective on God. And they adopted uh, only the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all that was in their Bible. And they refused to accept the rest of the Old Testament, 34 more books of the Old Testament in our Bible. They left out all of the prophets. Not only that, they changed the first five books, and uh, they, they put in some helpful, beneficial to their cause um, ideas. One of those was to build a temple in Samaria. Actually, they built a temple in, uh, on Mount Gerizim. We're going to see that in just a minute, and... Um, in, in the Bible, the place to worship was in Jerusalem at the temple that Solomon had built. And yet, now there are a north and a south and two places of worship. One, one group are viewed as heretics. Um, they are cult-like. They have their own Bible, their own way of worship. And so the Jewish people, that is not acceptable. Sadly, hatred grew out of that. And then uh, John just adds that when it's in a parenthesis like that, the translators are saying, this is just an addition by John, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And you can see why that was a, not a good situation. And um but the, the literal idea here is that Jews did not drink water from the same drinking utensils. That's almost taking this literally. And, and so it, it just was out of place for Jesus to want to take a drink from this, this woman. And this was definitely the custom of the religious leaders of the day. Jesus addresses deeper issues in verses 10 through uh, 15. Look at verse 10. Now Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that has asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Um, He says, if you knew the gift of God, what is the gift? What is the gift of God? I'll give you a hint. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave as a gift, his son Jesus. And that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this gift leads to the life. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for drink, you would have asked him. Because he's the one who can give you the living water. Um, This is quite puzzling for the woman, and in verse eleven she says, "Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? It doesn't make sense to her. She she knows uh, something about the well." And she knows it's spring-fed, and when the spring comes in, that's living water. That's how they understood it. Um, water that uh, was stagnant is not living water. And she knows that deep down in the well, there is living water. It's a hundred feet. She doesn't know how deep it is, but it's deep. It's a really long rope. And um, Jesus is not equipped. At least, that's how she views this. And so she says and asks this question and, uh, about Jesus in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You know, Jacob is the, is the father of the nation Israel. It's out of his family that his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jacob's well. He's a great man. Are you greater than he, he is? Um, this well has been for his family and his descendants and all of their animals all of this time. So she, she takes Jesus literally, but he was speaking differently than that. He was speaking metaphorically. He speaks of something greater, something eternal, something with spiritual ramifications. In verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's just normal. We need that water, and then we get thirsty again. Do you remember when he talked to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was trying to figure him out. You must be born of water and the Spirit. And he said, can I go back into my mother's womb again? He's just trying to think it out literally, and Jesus is talking something bigger than that. Something with a great spiritual dimension. And he is... Here as well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This is way beyond the physical realm. This water is life-giving. Eternal life-giving. But eternal life doesn't begin when people die. Eternal life begins when They receive the gift. Immediately, they are given life, a new life, a new birth, a rebirth. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what he was talking about. Born again spiritually, a spiritual birth after a physical birth. It changes things. It brings new life with deep spiritual connections. Now, you remember that the um, Samaritans have a limited view of Scripture. They only have the first five books, and so they're not interested in the prophets of God. Maybe she would have known if she had known Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Look at what what Jeremiah writes. And this is God speaking to his people. My people have committed two sins, They have forsaken me, God says, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns. You you know what a cistern is? Well, I know because my grandparents had one. They collected the rainwater from their house in this receptacle, this large. It was like a huge well underground. But water didn't come into it except it came off the roof From rain. That's the only way. And the cistern collected the water. And he says, You have dug your own cisterns. There were cisterns. Jeremiah got thrown into a cistern. Uh, There were places where water was stored. You have dug your own cisterns, broken cisterns, that they cannot hold water. God is saying, His people have tried to fill their lives with meaning and significance apart from him. They've been doing their own thing. They've found other ways to pursue their happiness. Those things that would fill the hole in their heart. But guess what? They're broken. They leak. They don't hold what people try to put in them. They don't. Reach the center, the core of their lives. They have rejected the spring of living water. And who is sitting on the side of the well right now, offering this woman a drink of living water? The one himself who is. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the spring of living water. Now, she doesn't get this spiritual concept, so Jesus now goes deeper, and he he gently probes into her life, verses 16 through 18, acknowledging the past. That was part of Randy's story, wasn't it? Acknowledging his past. Um, In John chapter 4, verses 16, through 18, he told her, Jesus speaks to her. He says, go call your husband and come back. Now, that would be an appropriate thing in their culture would be to, if we're going to talk about some of these things that, you know, I, I don't want to influence you apart from um, you, you know, two become one and you, you have this relationship with your husband who is a priority humanly. And that would be a normal thing to do, to include a husband like in this situation. But that's not what Jesus is is concerned about here. Um, And She says, I have no husband. Jesus already knew what was in her heart. He, He knew her situation. He knew about her life. He knew about all of it. And Jesus said to her, you, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And so Jesus gives this woman a, a quick overview of her life. You know, I bet he, that covered quite a few years, quite a few situations. She has been with many men Five of them were her husbands, and give her credit for trying. Um, I don't think she probably was treated well in her culture. This is really sad that she had had five husbands. We know that in the first century, there were situations where at times it was just really easy for a man to divorce his wife if he got tired of her. We We don't know her story. We don't know about the five husbands. We don't know if somebody died. One or two of them could have died. Most likely, they were just easy divorces. She'd been in relationships, and they have just failed. And they have failed. She's given up on marriage. She's living with somebody now that's not her husband. She was currently living in an adulterous situation. Men had used her. Um... That may be why Jesus found her at noonday alone. It was too hot to be out carrying water. Normally, the women from the village would come at night, and they would come together for security and uh, for social life, for conversation. But she's not, this isn't night. She's out here in the heat of the day, and she knew that nobody would come to the well at that time of day The other women probably would would have shunned her or did shun her because she had sought her significance in being loved by a man, and she was a failure in their eyes. And so the the subject is changing in verses 19 through 21, and the the subject uh, moves to religion, and we see that in verse 19. Sir, the woman says... I can see that you are a prophet. Now, it may well be that she does have a sense that, that he is from God and that he truly is a prophet. Or it may well be that she's being a little bit sarcastic that he's so smart. You're so smart. Um, it, it's not clear. But Jesus had identified her in an uncanny way, and he seems to know a lot about her. So she has questions. She brings up the long standing dispute between her people and the Jewish people. Verse 20 Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, uh, is probably pointing back, on this mountain. Uh, But you Jews claim the place where you must worship is Jerusalem. Now, who's right? What's the true place of worship? Now, the mountain she refers to is Mount uh, Gerizim. And I think we have a map for that. So just look there at the center. Mount Gerizim is really close uh, to Sychar. And uh, it's just probably like right behind them, that they can see it. And she could point to it right there on the spot, less than a mile from the well. Um, He speaks of of the future. He speaks of what God is doing to solve the age-old hatred between these people. And he says, a time is coming Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You know, he could have said, you people should know better because what God has revealed is that you should worship in Jerusalem and there only. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to correct all of the years of misunderstanding and mis communication, and wrong ideas. Um, he talks about the promises. Um, he, he's, verse 22, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he's going to point to the salvation. It comes from the family lineage of the Jewish people. And promises given in the prophets, and also in Genesis, and also in Exodus. So what the Jewish people focused on about the future promised Messiah was from Exodus 18, was one of the key passages, and that speaks of the the prophet, the prophet of God. Not just a prophet, but the prophet, the one that will be the prophet of all. God's spokesman and he will speak and and he will answer all of our questions. He says, you worship worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Um, Promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and uh, to King David. Promises through all the Jewish prophets. And God had promised Messiah would be a Jewish man from the descendants of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, born of a virgin. It's in the prophets. And of course, they have rejected the prophets. So Jesus has encountered a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And this woman now encounters Jesus, and her search for significance has taken her through a string of failed relationships. Now Jesus tells her why he has met with her on this day. And we see the reason in verses 23 through 26, our last last point. And we have another search, verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. What search? She has been searching all of her life for something to fill the void. And God has been searching for her, and now he has found her. God is seeking true worshipers, not hypocrites, not people who put on a good show, not people who say uh, the right things or dress in a certain way. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. True worshipers who worship in spirit, who are born again spiritually, who have a new birth who have now a spiritual dimension that connects them with God, been born of God. God is spirit, and that's how we relate, is spiritually. But we have to have the connection because we're separated from God on our own, in our own strength. It's about what God has done for us. And verses 25 and 26 we see the hope. The woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And she's right. And She has that hope. It's the same hope that the Jewish people have. Both the Jewish people and Samaritan people have this hope. One day the Messiah will come. The, The the Old Testament concept of Messiah, Old Testament written in Hebrew was, the, the Hebrew word was Mashiach, and it, and it means Messiah. It's, it's anointed one, and that's what's used here, um, Messiah. And the New Testament term is Christos, and it's Christ. And it, what does it mean? The anointed one. They're the same, Messiah and the Christ. And he says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And then Jesus does something very profound. Verse 26 And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. That's really amazing. He has just clearly identified himself to this Samaritan woman. He has never done that before. This is the first time. He didn't even say that to the disciples who are following him, at least recorded. He gave them clues, and they figured it out. But Jesus just openly says to the woman who he is. He is the Messiah, the promised one that God's people have been waiting for for thousands of years. He doesn't do this. He doesn't reveal himself first to a man, but to this woman. And not a woman who is godly already. He reveals himself to her. You know, who did Jesus reveal himself first after the resurrection? Mary, a woman. First, not the disciples. It's because God so loved these women that he gave us one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Three quick lessons. Number one, God will orchestrate the everyday circumstances of life to connect with just one person. That's what he did here. God orchestrates circumstances. God orchestrated circumstances for Randy Birdall to place his faith in Christ. Most of you people here have a story. God has orchestrated the circumstances of your life so that you would believe. God orchestrated the circumstances of my life so that on September 29th, 1974, about 4.30 in the morning, I became engaged spiritually with the God of heaven. Secondly, God engages with any person who sincerely seeks to know Him. Question for you is, do you have a personal relationship with God, do you have a personal relationship? God wants to engage anyone who takes him seriously, anyone who wants to know him personally. Um, God wants people to engage with him by trusting him because he loves them, because he loves you god wants to be in relationship with you just like he wanted to be in relationship with the samaritan woman thirdly god is seeking you to be a true worshiper right now he's seeking true worshipers those who worship in the power of the holy spirit not in their own human strength. You can be a Christ follower and just go through the motions. That is not a true worshiper. God is seeking people to worship him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Another We would talk about in the New Testament, filled with the Holy Spirit where God is in control and Jesus is Lord. God wants people to worship him according to the truth. According to the way scripture outlines worship, things like praise to God, things like thanksgiving to God for what he's done, things like financial generosity to God, that's an act of worship, things like sacrificial service, people who are willing to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice, that's worship. That's true worship. And God invites every person into a personal relationship with him. It's because we are sinners. We are separated from God. There are consequences for our sin. This separation is eternal. It leads to eternal condemnation. And God uh, has sent his son. That's why we celebrate Christmas this year god has sent his son and his son is because he loved us but god demonstrates his love for us and this while we were yet sinners christ died for us and he paid our penalty of sin his life was a ransom payment for our penalty of sin he was our substitute. He stood in for us. He experienced the death that I deserve. It doesn't benefit any person unless they come to God according to truth. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So if you've never placed your faith in Christ before, I I would invite you to trust him today. God invites you to trust him, to believe in Jesus Christ, because Jesus' death paid for your sin penalty. He paid it all. Now, we're going to celebrate communion today, and uh, that's when we remember we remember the death of, of Jesus. He died a sacrificial death. We deserved it. It was because of his love, he died in our place. And we remember uh, his death with a bread and a cup, and that's what this is. So um, it's one, one piece. You take off the top layer, there's bread. Take, and then you take off the next layer. There's juice, and um, don't spill it. So um, we, we are commanded as followers of Christ to remember, to stop and think and reflect, and we are to examine ourselves before, um, before we share in this time together. And this, we do this as an as entire church, as a, as a body of Christ. So let's uh, just bow our heads together. as we we thank God this morning. Gracious God, we just come before you, and uh, may you search our hearts right now. May you uh, show us the sin in our lives. May we be honest before you. May May we be willing to confess our sin to you. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, you know, you could pray and express your faith in Jesus just by saying a simple prayer. It's not magical. It has to be from your heart. You, has to, you have to mean it. And can it be simple, something as simple as, dear God, I understand that I'm a sinner. And um, I understand that, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He died for me. And God, I'm thankful and I embrace that truth. I believe in Jesus Christ who is alive right now. And then for all of us, God, uh, I just want to pray and thank God for the bread and thank God for the cup. The bread um, symbolizes the body of Christ and the blood symbolizes and the cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we take the bread and the cup, we, we remember, we, are, we were reminded, we are sinners and we are saved by grace. And that humbles us, it causes us to be thankful. It reminds us of who we are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.